Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called When Kronos Meets Kairos and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 22nd, 2006. Because of tornado warnings and torrential rains the night of April 3rd, 1968, only 2,000 people rallied at the Mason Temple in Memphis to support Martin Luther King Jr. in the strike planned on behalf of the city's sanitation workers. Three weeks earlier, in fact, King had spoken to 14,000 supporters in the same cavernous venue. Despite asking Ralph Abernathy to speak in his place, at about 9.30 p.m. that night, King addressed the faithful few. In an eerie evocation of his past that foreboded his future, he reminisced how he nearly died in 1958 when a deranged woman stabbed him in a Harlem bookstore. He then related how on his flight from Atlanta to Memphis that morning, a bomb scare caused the pilot to announce to the passengers that a threat to King's life necessitated a special guard on board. King then continued, And then I got to Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats, that were out. What would happen to me from some of our white sick brethren? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now, because I have been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. At 6.01 p.m. the next day, escaped convict James Earl Ray assassinated King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. He was only 39. Riots in more than 60 cities ensued. And then on April 8th, more than 300,000 people attended his funeral. Part of King's many-faceted genius was his recognition that Kronos Mere clock time, the passage of days, weeks, and years, no matter how long or how short, no matter how trivial or important, is no match for Kairos, that unique or opportune moment of God's visitation. Longevity, length of days, is a pale imitation and a sad substitute for a decisive choice at a critical moment. In the Gospel this week, the evangelist Mark begins his story of Jesus with a stunning announcement. After John was put in prison, we read, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. In Mark's account, these are the very first words spoken by Jesus. And what exactly was this good news of God that he announced? The Kairos has come, the kingdom of God is near, Repent and believe the good news. This Greek word kairos denotes a critical juncture, 
a divine appointment or intervention in contrast to banal chronos or everyday clock time. You might well yawn at chronos. You might forget whether it's Wednesday or Thursday. But kairos provokes a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. In announcing the good news of God, Jesus identified the coming of God's reign with his own person, which is why he then invited Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, come, follow me. Mark is unambiguous about their unequivocal response. At once they left their nets and followed him. As if that did not sufficiently punctuate his point, Mark then adds that when they had gone a little further, Jesus called a second set of brothers, James and John, who were at work in their boats. They too left everything at once to follow Jesus, their father, the hired help, the boat, and even their nets. Jesus proclaimed that God's kairos has come and his kingdom is near. Repent and believe. In this week's epistle, written about 30 years after Jesus, Paul used remarkably similar language in a letter that he wrote to the believers at Corinth. The kairos is short, wrote Paul. This world in its present form is passing away. Scholars debate exactly what Paul meant when he said that the time has been shortened, perhaps that death was imminent, that he believed Jesus was to return soon, or that he was alluding to specific matters at Corinth. Whatever he meant, there is no ambiguity whatsoever in the response he urged due to the crisis of the Kairos. He cautioned against any postponement, entanglements, or distractions. He eliminated any middle ground and called for an either-or decision. The married, those who were in mourning, the exuberant, buyers and sellers should all live as if the normal canons of Kronos did not adhere. The fulfillment which Jesus spoke about and foreshortening which Paul spoke about in God's Kairos meant that one could no longer live life business as usual. The kairos of God's coming kingdom in Jesus should elicit a radical revolution of life's priorities. Throughout the Bible, marginal sorts of people connect with Jesus' urgent invitation, the religiously suspect, social outcasts, the economically poor, and the morally impure whereas the smug establishment often misses it, does not believe it, or chooses not to hear. From the Old Testament reading this week, we read how the most improbable of converts, the pagan Ninevites, understood this kairos of God. Much to Jonah's shock and chagrin, these foreigners responded to his preaching. They repented and they believed his message about Yahweh. December 1st, 1955, dawned like any ordinary day of Kronos, except that a seamstress and civil rights activist named Rosalie Parks sensed the moment of God's Kairos. After a long day of work at Montgomery Fair department store, 
she boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus and refused the driver's demand to relinquish her seat to a white passenger. Parks understood the fleeting nature of transient chronos and the limited opportunities we have to choose risk over regret and urgency over complacency. In her autobiography, Rosa Parks, My Story, she explained her motivation that December evening. Quote, I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in, end quote. Her solitary act provoked the Montgomery bus boycott, propelled a 26-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. into the forefront of the civil rights movement and became an iconic moment of kairos in American history. The psalmist this week observes the leveling effect of Kronos, that whether one is born a pauper or a prince, together they are only a breath, Psalm 62, verse 9. Like smoke that dissipates from a room, at some point in the not-too-distant future, your past, present, and future, the duration or passage of Kronos you have enjoyed will come to an abrupt end. Until then, though, following in the footsteps of King and Parks, God's Kairos invites each of us to seize the opportune moment or appointed time and to enter his kingdom. And now for further reflection. What might the invitation of Jesus or the urgency of Paul mean for you? When have you experienced moments of kairos that interrupted your chronos? What in your mind are the major contributions of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Lee Parks? And finally, think about it. Risk something big for something good. My book review this week is a review of a book by Martin Meredith entitled The Fate of Africa, From the Hopes of Freedom to the Heart of Despair, A History of Fifty Years of Independence, New York Public Affairs, 2005, 752 pages. In the late 19th century, in the space of 50 years or so, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, and Belgium carved up Africa among themselves in an orgy of violence and greed. Joseph Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness, 1902, was one of the first to narrate the devastating legacy of European exploitation and colonialism. More recent studies have included Adam Hochschild's King Leopold's Ghost and Barbara Kingsolver's novel, The Poisonwood Bible, both treatments of the Congo, published in 1998. With nearly a dozen important books about Africa to his credit, Martin Meredith's massive tome begins where Thomas Pakenham left off in his panoramic book, The Scramble for Africa, White Man's Conquest of the Dark Continent from 1876 to 1912, 
a book that Packingham published in 1991. There are very few bright spots for the 880 million people who live today in Africa's 53 countries. Nelson Mandela showed what sound judgment, integrity, and a conciliatory posture can accomplish. But even so, most people in South Africa remain abysmally poor, and his successor, Thabo Mbiki, defended the psychopathic dictator Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe and alternately claimed that HIV did not exist or that it, that it was a white conspiracy. And compared to South Africa, most of Africa fares far worse. With only four independent states in Africa in 1945, Meredith documents this continental disaster country by country, beginning with Ghana's independence on March 6, 1957. Conventional wisdom argues that nothing could have been worse than colonial rule. Meredith demonstrates how and why this conventional wisdom might be false. After nearly 700 pages of meticulous research and moving prose, Meredith finishes with a concluding chapter. Despite rhetoric about an African Renaissance, by almost every conceivable index, Africa today faces complex problems of epic proportions. Fifty years after independence, its prospects, he believes, are bleaker than ever before. As for politics and democracy, for example, when Abdou Dief of Senegal accepted defeat in an election in March 2000, he was only the fourth African president to do so in four decades. Economically speaking, half of all Africans live on less than a dollar a day. Its world trade has plummeted by half since 1980. It is the only part of the world where school enrollment is falling. 40% of all Africans and 50% of African women cannot read. Life expectancy is dropping. AIDS has taken a devastating toll. Worst of all, Africa will never succeed without significant aid from the West. But these countries, says Meredith, having poured $300 billion into Africa with very little to show for it, are more reluctant than ever to invest. Even if the West did help, Meredith believes, the sum of Africa's misfortunes, its wars, its despotisms, its corruption, its droughts, its everyday violence, presents a crisis of such magnitude that it goes beyond the reach of foreseeable solutions. Ultimately, in his opinion, Africa's own big men dictators are to blame, for they're the ones who have plundered the continent for personal gain and for political power at any cost. I'm interested to see what Meredith's book does to conversations about Africa, especially in light of outspoken advocates for vigorous intervention like Bono of the music group U2 or Jeffrey Sachs, the economist of Columbia University, who've made an urgent plea in his book The End of Poverty, which he published in 2005. Further, given the magnitude of Africa's dysfunction, this book renewed my appreciation for all the many NGOs, Christian and otherwise, that have not given up, but who have served Africa with expertise,
compassion, and love. And finally, having traveled to Africa five times, I would like to echo Meredith's tribute to what he calls, quote, the resilience and humor with which ordinary Africans confront their many adversities, end quote. For film this week, I review a Japanese movie entitled Nobody Knows from the year 2004. Yagira Yuya won Best Actor at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival for his role as Akira, a 12-year-old boy who cares for his three younger siblings when the four of them are abandoned by their mother. Paternity in this film simply does not exist, and in fact, we might believe that the children had four different fathers. The few minutes we meet the mother, Keiko, early in the film would not discourage that idea. After Keiko moves her family into a new apartment, she gives them several rules. Only Akira can go outside. None of them will go to school. And no loud noises lest they be evicted. She then leaves, and but for Akira's savvy, the kids are on their own. How could she possibly leave her four children? When will she return? Where did she go? Nobody knows. The young Akira shops, cooks, banks at the ATM, tracks down his dad to beg for money, and cares for his siblings as we watch the sad and inevitable meltdown of the four children. This film was inspired by a true story that was reported in Tokyo not too long ago. The film is in Japanese with English subtitles. Nobody knows. And finally, for poetry this week, in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we've posted a portion of his speech, I Have a Dream, which King delivered on August 28, 1963. I might add that the text of the entire speech is on our website posted on the essay at the home page. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slave and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down, down in Alabama 
with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 22nd, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.